0: Good morning, I do bring greetings this morning from InterCity Baptist Church and Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary where I serve, and uh, the very first class I ever taught at Detroit Baptist Seminary back in 1999, your pastor was one of the students, so uh, we go way back, and uh, more recently, David was in the same class, and I'm I'm always very happy to say in settings like this that both of them acquitted themselves extremely well in the class and in their seminary work. Uh, overall. I do want to extend a special greeting this morning for anyone who happened to have served. I recognize Memorial Day is for those who died while serving, but it seems a good occasion to recognize those who uh, did serve, and, uh, and uh, I do appreciate uh, any of you who are in that category. I want to start this morning by uh, pointing out a, a fellow by the name of Charlie Plum. Some of you may have heard of him. He was, uh, in the the Vietnam War, a a legendary pilot, flew 74 successful missions into enemy airspace, and five days before his tour of duty was to end, uh, he flew a 75th mission and was shot down. He ejected, and he parachuted down behind enemy lines, was captured, spent six years in a POW camp there. Sometime after his release... While eating in a restaurant, a man approached him and said, "You're Charlie Plum, aren't you? You flew jet fighters in Vietnam from aircraft from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shot down." Plum asks, "How did you know that?" "Well, I packed your parachute," the man replied. And he proceeded to shake Plum's hand and said, "I guess it must have worked." And Plum Admitted that it had. If that chute hadn't worked, he knew that he would not have been there that day. And that evening, Charlie Plum couldn't get the conversation out of his head. Ace pilots during the Vietnam War were a bit like celebrities and rarely interacted with the enlisted soldiers, but one of these lowly sailors had packed his parachute and saved his life, and he came to realize that ordinary Nameless sailor not only completed his routine, uncelebrated task faithfully, and if he hadn't, this celebrity pilot would never have survived to tell the tale. And he became a motivational speaker. In fact, he still is one. Uh, he's known particularly for his probing question Who packed your parachute? Plum learned during combat a lesson that is not restricted to the battlefield. We find that uh, this lesson that he learned, we're most successful in improving our own condition, physical or spiritual, when each of us, prominent or obscure in the visible life of the church, seek the good of each other. And what I'd like to look at this morning is a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, that I think indicate this, and as we read, uh, we will see the overall message that comes from these verses. We must, as a church, seek the good of one another if our mission is to be successful. This passage is set at the end of one of Paul's largely positive letters. Some of his letters are a bit more chiding, uh, but this is largely a positive letter. The first chapter is given over to praise, commendation of his readers, exemplary conduct, their exemplary work ethic, their faithfulness, and their commitment to sound doctrine. In verses 2 and 3, he expresses some concern because some of some of the uh, persecution that they were enduring, um, but uh, he commends them uh, for doing so faithfully. In the first part of chapter 4 and in the last part of chapter 5, Paul addresses a few failures and some neglect of duty in the life of the church. But even here, he prefaces the, this this section in chapter 4 verse 1 by saying you're already pleasing God in your walk, but I encourage you to do so even more. And I say all this to stress that Paul viewed his readers as true believers who sincerely wished to please God, and even though there were occasional wrinkles and missteps, that mushroom later in, chapter, in, in the second book of the Thessalonians, uh, to more significant issues, uh, he, was, he was very pleased uh, with what they were doing. But here in First Thessalonians, Paul provides some simple, timely advice and correctives that if they had followed them carefully, perhaps could have avoided Second Thessalonians, which is a bit more harsh, ever from needing to be written. Interestingly, even though this this letter is written to a church with pastors, Paul's instructions here uh, in verses 12 to the end of the chapter are addressed to the brethren. That is normal, run-of-the-mill church members. So what we have here is the responsibility of ordinary church members to everyone else in the congregation. We are, as it were, in a school for the mutual edification and discipleship of one another. When you wake up on Sunday morning, if you're like me, you probably go through your head, okay, what do I have to do at church today? And so you sort of run through, am I in the nursery? Am I an usher? Am I a greeter? And no, I don't have anything to do today. And if you answer, if you, if you come to the end of your statement, I don't have anything to do today, Reconsider because you always have something to do in the life of the church. There's 55 one another's in the New Testament, and those give you 55 bits of instruction for what you need to do and what you need to receive every time that you walk into this church. And so we find here that this section of Scripture is written with this in mind. Sometimes when we come to church, we are on the educating and discipling end of things. Sometimes we're on the receiving end of those things. And, and by the way, if you ever think you get to the point that you're only on the giving end, be careful because you've actually probably become vulnerable to at least one of the concerns that Paul is going to address here in these verses. So what are the offenses that Paul is concerned with? Well, he identifies three of them in verse 14, and then gives solutions to the problem. And so, as we read these, I want us to be thinking about the problems from both sides. Not only how we may help those who struggle with these problems, but also examining ourselves along the way to discover our own susceptibilities. And if I can preface these remarks I'm going to suggest here that probably you as an individual are vulnerable to one or more of these three, but you probably trend towards one of these. So I want you to be thinking in terms of, am I an offender? And then also, and and solve the problem in yourself, but then also uh, the, the, the instructions are actually given to the mature to help those who have this problem. So how can I help those around me? So that's what we want to do as we read this morning. So the verse is here, verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. And then he follows up with a statement here, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And so the three problems characteristic to ordinary church life are these: being unruly, or perhaps if you have another translation, it may say something like idle. Those seem rather different. We'll have to talk about that. The second one is being faint-hearted or timid, which are pretty similar. And the third, the the, uh, the translations are pretty much agreed in calling this the being weak. And then for each group, a solution is provided, not a punitive solution you're not punishing people for being this way but actually one that is corrective that is we're ever to be seeking not to punish the person who has these problems but to resolve the problem and help them get over it so we are to be seeking the good of one another Now, I'm not typically a fan of word studies and sermon preparation. I think sometimes that's overplayed. But in this particular passage, the words are pretty much everything here. In fact, the very first set that we're going to look at, the terms admonish and unruly need to be looked at to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. So let's talk about the offense first, being unruly. This term is only used twice in the whole New Testament here in 1 Thessalonians 5, and then again in 2 Thessalonians 3, when this problem goes unresolved and mushrooms into a, pro, into a greater problem that it, that in which Paul has to call upon the readers to engage in church discipline. So really, if we, if we can think about it, it's really only this one usage of this term in the New Testament. Uh, two phases of it, but one, one usage, one problem here that is addressed. Um, it's a, because it's only used a couple of times in the Bible, it's sometimes very difficult to identify what the term means. Uh, but it's important that we do, because we find in 2 Thessalonians that it is a, an offense worthy of church discipline. Now, we all know that church discipline can be meted out for non-repentance against a great variety of sins. But there are a few sins that are mentioned in Scripture that are immediately uh, worthy of church discipline, that they are mentioned here. Uh, We find, for instance, that Matthew speaks of unresolved interpersonal conflict. First Corinthians speaks of gross sexual sin, a man has his, his father's wife. Galatians speaks of an egregious theological problem that is is effectively another gospel. But apart from these three, this is the only sin named in this kind of context, specific sin named. So we really need to know what it means for for one to be unruly. So depending on what translation you have, you might have another word here, and that is uh, to be idle. So I think it's probably necessary for us to understand how the term is used outside of Scripture in order for us to know how it is used here. The term actually has its genesis as a military term, and it means literally not at one's post. Or perhaps we could use the term AWOL, right? Absent without leave. The term is sometimes applied to soldiers who were AWOL because they were lazy, and hence the term idol shows up in some of your translations. But most uses of the term suggest that the soldier was wall because he was belligerent, he was rebellious. And so the term unruly uh, comes to the fore, and it is likely the better term uh, in, in translation. So applying it to the modern church member, the concern here is not so much mere idleness, you know, it's not somebody sitting around all day playing video games or something of that nature, but more of a sullen non participation. That is, I'm sideways with my church, so I am going to be a monkey wrench in the gearworks of the church. So this person is not so much neglecting his responsibilities, which is a problem but deliberately sabotaging the shared mission of the church by not doing his part, and then passively preventing others from doing what they need to be doing. Every pastor that you talk to will almost certainly say that there is one or two people that take up way more of their time than anybody else. Okay, And I think the point here is don't be that person. Okay, Now, I understand it. If you're ill, if you're, if you're being mentored by a pastor, this, this is something that a pastor delights in doing. But sometimes it's just a person who's always sideways with every single thing that happens in the life of the church, and it saps the energy out of the church, out of the pastor, and what ends up happening is less gets done. The mission of the church does not move forward. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 bears out this understanding by defining the unruly person as one who does not walk according to our traditions, refusing to participate, creating division. And so what is the egregious offense here worthy of a warning here in 1 Thessalonians and of church discipline in 2 Thessalonians is divisiveness. That is, fragmenting the church into factions unwilling to cooperate with one another in order to carry out the mission of the church. And so what do you do with the unruly person? And that's a question that pastors have been seeking for a long time. What can be done to make sure that this unruliness does not get out of hand? And better, how the unruly person can be put to work Carrying out the mission of the church. Well, 2 Thessalonians bluntly recommends expulsion from the church, but here in 1 Thessalonians, we find a stern measure that, if implemented carefully, might prevent the need for the aggressive steps that we see in 2 Thessalonians. Paul says here, warn them, admonish them. If you're familiar with this, uh, the term here, the term is new theo. So, neuthetic counseling is a term that comes from this, Um, and uh, if a neuthetic counselor is one who refuses to coddle or cultivate bad behavior, or to deal slowly with bad behavior by using some sort of a step-down plan, in the words of the standard Greek lexicon, the term means this, to charge someone to avoid or cease an improper course of conduct, Admonishing does not give room for the offender to give explanations, excuses, alternatives. When someone is admonished, the words are, "Stop being unruly, get in line." Now some of you are sitting here and saying, "Why? Oh, I don't think I could do that. That's harsh. I don't really get into the admonishing thing. It's not my style. Well then prepare for Second Thessalonians to roll around, because it assuredly will. For the good of all, Paul says, this is how you must approach such a person. Tell this person who undermines the programs or leaders or decisions of the church, who acts to subvert the good faith efforts of the majority and wants to talk about it continuously, that he's out of line doesn't mean that a person can't have reservations, can't ask questions. That's not at all the point I am making at all. But it does mean that if he actively opposes or subverts the plans and mission of the church, he needs to be warned. But this is not the only problem that appears in the life of the church. And frankly, most of us are not tempted by this problem. It's usually only a handful, one or two maybe, who are in the category of being unruly. And so the next problem, while not as visible, is perhaps the majority problem that we see in the life of the church. In fact, in some ways, it's the exact opposite. So encourage the faint-hearted, Paul says. Again, it's vital to understand what it means to be faint-hearted. Some of you have the term timid. I think pretty much a good synonym here, so I don't think we need to Uh, you know, parse the differences between those. Literally here we have a small-souled person, someone with a small soul. He is one who has experienced conflict in the past and doesn't want any more. He's become gun-shy. He wants to avoid conflict at all costs, continually worries about conflict. He's the very happiest when there's absolutely nothing Controversial ever happening in the life of the church. He worries every time something new or different happens in the life of the church, worrying always that the church is going to change and always for the worse. His favorite sentence is this We've never done it that way before. Let's not rock the boat by doing it now. Now, I do want to give a caveat here. Some changes in the life of the church are bad changes. Changes to fixed bodies of truth in the Scripture, changes to philosophies of ministry uh, contained within the Scripture, these can't be tolerated. Still, change always occurs in the life of any organism. And a church filled with timid people never takes on new challenges, never seizes new opportunities, never addresses bad practices, never makes hard decisions, and rarely communicates the gospel. They just want peace and safety at all costs within their church community. And apparently there were a lot of people in Thessalonica who were timid people, faint-hearted people. If you take a look at the rest of this letter, you'll find that these people had undergone extreme persecution, so bad that they thought they had missed the coming of Christ and were in the time of judgment. And they wanted to ride out the storm live quietly, unobtrusively, for the rest of their lives, and then die in peace. Many, it seems, were finished with the kinds of risk that bold gospel presentation require. Paul says this is a problem. But this kind of a problem is very different from being unruly. It is not addressed in the same neuthetic way that the previous problem was handled. Such an approach would not work for such a person. The timid tend to retreat even more deeply into their insecurities and effectively disappear. Several years ago, we acquired a rescue dog who was very uncertain. Let's put it that way. He wanted to please us, but he didn't know how. And he often made bad decisions. I tend to be fairly neuthetic myself, and I would rebuke this dog. And sometimes, apparently, a bit too harshly. And whenever this happened, he would exhibit symptoms of a canine syndrome. You didn't know that dogs had syndromes. They do. Uh, and so he had submissive urination syndrome. This is a syndrome that is aptly named. I'm not going to explain it. It's, it's, the, the, the name says it all, right? Submissive urination syndrome. And when he exhibited symptoms of this syndrome, it would make me more upset, naturally. And it only made the problem worse. Now, I don't expect that there are people in the church who have this syndrome. But there are timid people here. And when reprimanded harshly, will respond a lot like my dog. You can't just slap the faint-hearted into line and run roughshod over them. They'll slink back into a corner, just like my dog did. He probably won't leave the church, but he also will do very little to serve it and carry out its mission. So what do you do with a timid Christian? Well, here's the work. You encourage him. You comfort him. You gently remind him of the mission of the church, and when he says, You know, if nothing is ventured, nothing will be lost. And you answer by saying, nothing's going to be gained either. We've got a mission to carry out. And if that's not happening, then we need to do what it takes to get us there. And there's no retirement from this task. As long as there's life, there's an obligation to take part in the Great Commission at some level. There's always an obligation to do more than simply come to church. You've got to do something for God. But you don't chew out the timid person for failing to do this. Tell him to get with the program. You work together side by side with the timid person to accomplish something. You explain the vision. You live out the vision of the church and the goal for the church. Cultivate that nascent eagerness that is in all believers to do something great for God. You encourage the timid man. Paul gives examples of how to do this, I think particularly in the books, the letters written to Timothy, right? Timothy apparently had some timidity in him. He begins his letter to Timothy with the encouraging words, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love, of self-discipline. You've got this, Timothy. Let's go out and do some good. You want to know how to encourage the timid? Well, read 1 and 2 Timothy sometime, and I think you'll get a very good handle on what you can do for the good of the church to encourage the timid. So we've got the unruly and we've got the timid. Together, these two problems probably have destroyed as many churches as anything else. On the one one hand, we have disgruntled, sullen people who sabotage the church's mission. On the other, we have people fully willing to abandon the church's mission for the sake of peace. Both groups suffer from unfruitfulness. They don't carry out the mission of the church. But we need to respond correctly to both. And our tendency, I think, is to get it reversed, right? We're scared of the unruly, so we let them we, we just sort of encourage them and 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 try to appease them. And with the timid, we say, just get in line, do something. And Paul says you've actually got it reversed. If you can reverse this, this will be serving the good of the whole congregation. But there's a third problem here before we get to our summary here. Help the weak. Help the weak. And the terms here are, there's really not much explanation that we have to give, right? Uh, the, the, the idea of helping is pretty easy. Uh, the idea of weak is so abundantly used in the New Testament that if we have a problem, it's because there are multiple uses of weakness in the Scriptures, and we have sort of have to pick out which one it is. It's kind of like the, the English word weak, right? You can talk about a weak athlete, a weak argument, or weak coffee, and you mean something very different by each one, right? And the same thing is true in Greek. Um, we find, for instance, uh, that uh, the weak often has to do uh, with, uh, with people who are, who are physically weak. And certainly, we do need to be mindful of those who are physically weak in the life of the church. But The rest of these issues are of a moral and spiritual variety, and so it's likely we're talking here about a moral and spiritual weakness and not a physical one. But even here, we have some choices. For instance, there are some who are weak due to fear, due to their low station in life, and this really resembles the timid category, and I don't think Paul is going to be redundant here, so I'm going to leave this one aside. This brings us to the most likely meaning of the word weak, and that is immaturity and the proclivity towards moral failure. Paul has discussions of the weak and the strong in both Romans and 1 Corinthians, and in both he describes the weak as those who are victims of, first, biblical illiteracy. They don't know what the Bible says. They are weak in the faith because they don't know what they're supposed to believe. And then secondly... They are particularly susceptible to temptation and to moral failure. So these are, this is the category that we find mentioned here in First Thessalonians. One who is immature and thus biblically illiterate and for that reason is prone to moral failure. So first let's look at this deficiency of biblical knowledge, so this biblical illiteracy. In 1 Corinthians we have a problem of people who would not eat meat that had been butchered at pagan temples because they thought that this meat was somehow ruined by its association with these temples. Now, most of these young Christians had been saved out of Greek or Roman contexts. They wanted nothing to do with idolatry, and so they would rather leave every vestige of it behind, uh, including the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but had been put on the open market. And Paul, of course, tells them at this point that if once it's put, been put on the open market, its association is not such that you cannot eat it anymore. Okay? But these weak individuals said, I don't want anything to do with meat at all because I don't want to be tempted to go back into idolatry. In Romans, the problem is similar but different. Here we have Jewish believers who were hesitant to eat certain meats because of their perceived need to remain faithful to the Mosaic law, which said only certain kinds of meats can be eaten. In this case, their illiteracy was not of the Old Testament scriptures, but of the apostolic tradition. Peter had had a had had quite a a prominent event in in the book of Acts, where he saw the sheet coming up and down, and animals going up and down on it with these words from God himself, arise, Peter, kill, eat. And what does Peter say? No, 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 I've never eaten this kind of meat in my life. And God responds in a little bit of a miffed tone. What I have told you is clean, is clean. Now go ahead and eat this meat. So he's letting Peter know, and with him the rest of the early church, that these meat restrictions were no longer on. Okay, there's an apostolic tradition that is displacing the Mosaic tradition that they had been accustomed to. And so Paul recognizes there's no such thing as Zeus, there's no such thing as Hercules, it's all a bunch of hooey, and the Mosaic law has been set aside. But if these weak people who are very vulnerable are tempted to fall by my actions, then I've got to do everything I can, even if it means never eating meat again for as long as I live, then I'll do it. Because I want to make sure I am pursuing the good of everyone. I want to help the weak, not to sin. So first, the weak have a deficiency of biblical knowledge, and it is important for us to remedy that problem, but until that happens... We need to help them. A second aspect of weakness emerges as well. Weak people tend to be vulnerable to sin. And the particular vulnerabilities that we all have are different from one another. We all have what we sometimes call besetting sins. We, we don't all suffer from exactly uh, temptation to the same sins. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, at the very end of this discussion here, that this should all, cause us all to consider what we do to make sure that those other members in this church are not tempted to sin. And what does he say? Whether, therefore I eat or drink or whatever I do, I'm going to make sure it's done to the glory of God. And in context, it is, it, he, he, he says here, "If that means I'm not going to eat for the rest of my life, eat meat for the rest of my life, I won't." And I think he, would, he, didn't, he doesn't actually develop the drinking part, but I, I think the point here is, I won't drink, for as long, uh, drink alcohol for as long as I live if it's going to help my brother in Christ. Every church has its weak members. In fact, all of us have weaknesses of one sort or another, things that we strive to overcome. And as Christians grow, they gain a measure of mastery over them. We become stronger ideally, as we mature and become more sanctified. But remember, not everyone in your church is a mature Christian. In fact, whenever a church's ministry of evangelism is flourishing, you constantly have a fresh batch of immature people that's coming in at the bottom, right? You've got to reach out to those people and help them. You've got to accommodate them. You've got to let them into your circle and let them display their ignorance and immaturity without crushing their will to serve the church. Don't dismiss them. Help them. For such were some of you, right? Many years ago, when I had sons who were just starting to share the load of home maintenance, one of my sons shoveled a portion of my driveway for the first time. You can imagine. The line was crooked. He didn't get all the way down to the pavement. After he didn't get all the way down to the pavement, he tramped on it, so it was, you know, it was ground right into the concrete, so it's really hard to get off. You, you've been there, right? Okay. Now, what does a good father do in that situation? Does he say, ah, you did it all wrong. Get back into the house and watch cartoons. Well, I hope that's not how you respond. Because here is a weak person. He's physically immature, he's young. And here's a person who wants to help, who wants to get involved, who wants to participate in the life of the family, and what do you do? You you help them. It might take years before he actually shovels the driveway to your satisfaction and to your very high standards that you have. But that's part of the learning curve, right? You've got to help them. You've got to accommodate them. Try and take steps each time but you have to accommodate them. He needs help. And that's what Paul tells us that young believers need. Help. They don't need to have pointed out that their lines are crooked and that they tramped in the snow. They need help. They need to be accommodated. And Galatians 6 gives us a model of how this is to be done. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. Pick him up. Dust him off. Help him try again. Don't just leave him alone to grow up on his own, but following these verses, bear one one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Understand his weaknesses. Work with him. Assist in the slow process of transformation. And yeah, it, it happened with you too. You just can't remember it. But it was the same thing that you went through. And someone came along beside you and accommodated and helped you along the way. And by the way, something obvious here that sometimes eludes us is this. The mature have to be in contact with the weak, right? You can't have clusters of mature people and clusters of weak people and expect the weak to somehow come, become mature. There has to be a mingling of those two groups. There's no such thing as instant maturity. It's a process, and sometimes the mature tend to forget that. We need to help the weak. For their good. Paul's not quite done here because he recognizes that all these things are hard. It's hard to admonish the unruly, to encourage the timid, help the weak, because we all have a tendency to persist in our own characteristic problems, which we're blind to. The unruly will have to be brought into line more than once. The timid will revert to their skepticism over and over, and the weak seem endlessly, never to grow up. And that's why Paul adds to the last statement, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. There are no secrets hidden in the Greek words here, none, The meaning of these commands is crystal clear. It's immediately understood by all. It's not the meaning of these commands that's the problem. It's the implementation of this command. There's a tendency among all Christians, even mature ones, perhaps even especially mature ones, to stumble here. There's a tendency to fear the unruly or be bullied by him. There's a tendency to grab the shoulders of the timid, as it were, and shake him. Tell him to get with the program. There's a tendency to grab the snow shovel out of the hands of the weak, thrust him aside, tell him to go inside with mom. I'll do it myself. That's why Paul summarizes this section with this command, be patient. Notice here that the solution to the problem listed is not primarily addressed to the unruly, the timid, or the weak, but to the mature, right? It's given to strong members who have to deal with these people, and I think that's the genius of this passage. The solution to a church's problem is not just the unruly getting in line, it's not just the timid becoming courageous, it's not just the weak becoming strong it's mature christians in all of their dealings being patient with the unruly being patient with the timid being patient with the weak and if there's any question as to what this patient is to look like paul summarizes the idea in verse 15 under two headings right first negatively don't be vengeful don't be retaliatory and then secondly seek the good of one another Again, this isn't rocket science to understand, but it can be enormously difficult to do, right? There is in each one of us as believers a deep-seated sense of righteousness and justice that can be cultivated for good or for ill. Cultivated poorly, righteousness becomes self-righteous. I'm better than the timid, I'm better than the weak, and so I can dismiss them. Justice becomes vengeance. I'll clear up this problem. might be ugly, but that's okay because I'm right. And oh, the trouble that those two responses can be. When our righteousness becomes self-righteousness and our justice becomes vengeance, the church suffers. And so remember Paul's exhortation, don't respond to the vices in verse 14 in a sinful, vengeful, or self-righteous way. Instead, Look around the room at the unruly, timid, and weak people and suppress the urge to be angry, impatient, disdainful, or smug. And, above all, we need to be reminded that lest we become arrogant, that we are all routinely numbered among the unruly, the weak, and the timid. We probably all, as I said earlier, have a tendency to One of those vices more than the other two, right? And we're in a frightfully dangerous place when we imagine that the people around us are unruly and timid and weak, but not me. I've gotten past all that. And if we find ourselves divisive, idle, timid, or discover that we have susceptibilities to specific sins, then by all means we need to treat that log in our own eyes before we try to address it, the uh, splinter in someone else's. And what will be the result of this action? Seeking the good of everyone. Seeking to eradicate these weaknesses in ourselves and to seek the good of those who are scattered around this room. Well, look down to verse 23, and you'll see a summary of this section that includes all of, all of this whole section, really, from verses 12 to 22. The God of peace will sanctify you entirely, such that your spirit and soul and body will be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only will you grow in your personal sanctification, but so will the whole church, The church at large will be sanctified and become what it needs to be before God. This summer season will almost surely bring occasions for unruliness, for timidity, for weakness, to raise their ugly heads in the life of this church. I'm saying this confidently, not because I have got some sort of insider knowledge, but because Paul tells us these are common problems that always are persistent in the life of the church. It's part of the ebb and flow of church life, which is why Paul addresses it. So take time now to renew your awareness to your own susceptibilities as described in this text. Deal with them, first for yourself, and then for the good collectively of everyone around you. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word here. Lord, we are thankful for the church and for the pattern. Of that, that the patterns that it has of, of iron sharpening iron so that we each become more like Christ week in, week out, day in, day out. And Lord, help us all to see in your word that we saw this morning that this is a responsibility not of each of us individually, but all of us collectively. And may we all be inclined uh, this morning and always to be seeking the good of one another. We pray this in your name. Amen.